The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So this afternoon we're going to, Wynn and I would like to give some instructions that hopefully will be really practical about living in this human realm where there's always, at least it seems most of the time, more to do than we have time to do. I mean, it's especially relevant and unavoidable because of the whole information age and uh, the reality of suffering and the reality of injustice and the realm of possibilities. A couple people mentioned travel, but just, just on the level, forget travel, just on the level of being curious, right? We have all these potentials to see what's going on in the world the interesting things, the horrendous things that need to stop, that need to change. And of course, every time we open a doorway and read something or listen to something or have a conversation with someone, then there's going to be a natural movement into action. Like, oh, I want that, right? Or that's got to stop, that's not okay. And so I guess, you know, there's the option of shutting ourselves off or at least strategically choosing how much to take in, when to turn the Wi-Fi off or close the screens off, shut the screens down. And I think probably all of us uh, do, will need to do that, do do that to some degree, you know, be strategic about how many doors and windows are open to the outside world and even within our own mind, like how, how much we might allow ourselves to think about this or worry about that. When does planning become neurotic? When does revisiting some painful or tricky place in our life become neurotic? When is it skillful and necessary to think through something? And when is it unnecessary and a cause for suffering? But a lot of it has to do like in a, in a more subtle, and this is what I'd like to talk about for about 15, 20 minutes. This, so not neglecting this other piece of like making choices, who you're around, what electronic devices are on, those sorts of more practical things totally worth experimenting with, I think. But even then, we still have this other skill we can develop because in every moment, it really matters what the mind pays attention to. And so even if we choose to plan or choose to think through something, like what is my, you know, given that you know, just to use an example that's big in the news, you know, the shooting in Sacramento, assuming most of you have heard about the police shooting of an unarmed <coughs> African-American man in his grandmother's backyard. And, um, you know, so it, it matters what we pay attention to as that situation, information, images we've seen is rattling around emotionally, mental images, thoughts. There's many aspects that the mind can pay attention to. 
And it's, in a, in a Buddhist sense, it's a karmic choice, meaning it's an action that has ramifications, what the mind pays attention to. Like, for example, bringing to mind the, the family and their experience of loss or their experience of rage will have certain ramifications for what happens next in our mind. Or bringing to mind our own relative safety or absence of safety when we're out in the streets, you know, moving around in our city. Or, right, I mean, there's like 10,000 things we could pay attention to in any situation. And the interesting question, the important question is, what's a skillful, what is skillful to pay attention to? And how best to pay attention to that? In paying attention to what does the mind, does my life actually contribute to peace, wisdom, more skill, transformation, positive transformation, right? And in what ways, what objects, paying attention to what objects and what ways perpetuates ignorance, suffering, tension, unnecessary tension. And I know it kind of feels like, well, that that could be crazy making because now all of a sudden I'm, that's like really going to make us busy because I'm responsible for everything I think. Like not just what I choose to pay attention to, but how I pay attention. You know, it can feel like, oh, that's overwhelming. But it's actually the way it is. Like it, it does really matter There's a really interesting discourse. Most of you who've been around for a while or have been practicing for a while have come across this well-known teaching. I mean, it's really central to how the Buddha taught where he talks about the five hindrances. So there's, you know, hopefully everyone's bumped into the experience where your mind felt relatively collected, grounded, peaceful, um, you know, that sort of, sense of unification, non a mind that's not fragmented, not superficial. So it's both settled, but also not settled in a dull way, settled, but also very alert, very awake. Right? You know that experience? We call that, most of you know, samadhi. That's the Pali word. Because concentration, as an English word, for most of us connotes a sense of tightness, and that's in you know most of the text, samadhi gets translated as concentration. Be better, maybe a stability of mind, collectedness of mind, unification of mind. These are better, but you know it's it's been so long now that it's been translated as concentration. It's probably not going to change. But it it's a really uh, relaxed, but very stable presence, clear. Because the mind is relaxed, the heart is relaxed, it's really clear. You know, if we're concentrating and it has tension, there might be a certain intensity to that way of paying attention, but it will lose some clarity because the tension will distort the seeing, the consciousness or the awareness. So the relaxation, like not having an agenda in the seeing, really supports the clarity, seeing things as they are. And it's a real, samadhi is a real antidote to busyness and agitation and restlessness and superficiality and sort of these 
unproductive cycles that our mind is often spinning with, right? And one of the technical definitions of samadhi, this balanced, stable, clear, powerful mind. It's, I like to use the word powerful just to reform that word because powerful is also a word we associate with being tight. You know, like when we have power, we've got an agenda. Like I'm going to do something with my power on it, power, and it's self-centered, you know. But power isn't bad. Power is just power. I mean, it can be used for destructive purposes for sure. But power can be a very beautiful force. There's nothing bad about power. We want power, even in this sort of inner sense of a mind that's really powerful or a heart that's really powerful, right? We want that power, the power of clarity, the power of not being pushed around by experiences. This is all aspects of samadhi, this beautiful balance, stable balance of mind, clarity of mind. And the technical definition is that's what the mind naturally is like when it's not bothered by the hindrances. So you could probably come up with any number of lists. Some would have three, some would have ten. But the Buddha divided all the ways that our mind, the stability of mind can be hindered. He just created a category of five. It can be hindered, it can be disturbed by wanting pleasant sense experience, right? It can be disturbed by ill will, aversion, wanting something to go away, right? So if I'm sitting in meditation and I'm you know, trying to figure out how to get rid of the unpleasant sensations in my knee and it's tinged or strongly tinged by ill will, like I don't like that pain and then I think it's in the way of me having a good set, right? Well, that's a hindrance to the stability of mind, the clarity of mind. So we have, and they're kind of a pair, right? Sort of two sides of the same thing, not liking things as they are because I want more of this, I want to hold on to this, or I don't want this, I want this to go away. And then the other two are a pair, too much energy, too little energy. So too little is uh, sloth and torpor or dullness of mind. Too, little, uh, too much energy is restlessness and remorse or restlessness and worry because worry as a mental factor you know, is really associated with that spinning of the mind, the restless spinning of the mind. And then the last is doubt. Not a productive or a skillful doubt like, I'm just going to check this out a little bit more. That's good. You know, that kind of doubt is good. But doubt that causes the mind to stay on the surface so it never resolves the doubt. It just becomes uh, a cycle that the mind spins with. So uh, the interesting thing, the way the Buddha taught, he, he, he used this because the Buddha always had to replace, oh, you've got hindrances because you're a bad meditator or you're a bad person. Right? He always had to describe, like in this case, samadhi or the absence of samadhi as a natural process. Like how is it that sometimes the mind's pretty stable and clear and how is it that sometimes the mind's a mess? It's not good for much. It's superficial. It's reactive. It's you know, lost in some content. And he had to describe that in a natural way. So he used this 
metaphor feeding and starving. Right? So when like when we have greed in the mind, wanting, what is it that the mind does that keeps feeding the wanting? Or what does the mind need to pay attention to so that the wanting goes away? How does the mind abandon and if we're obsessed with wanting something, a new cell phone or someone to notice us or whatever it might be. And this is where it goes to what I said at the beginning. It really matters what we pay attention to. Paying attention to some things will feed these restless, busy, agitating cycles that we are often lost in. It doesn't just happen because we're bad. It happens because the mind is paying attention to the present moment in a way that feeds this natural process of worrying, judging, or whatever the agitating pattern is. It's getting fed. If it weren't being fed, it would stop. Because everything has causes. And if the supporting causes are removed, that thing ceases to exist. Right? And we know that because like, we've been in negative cycles, but it isn't necessarily happening now. Well, what's missing so that it's not happening now? Or what was there that supported it being there? So just let's just take greed as a, the first example. So if what is the mind, like if we're in one of those greed cycles, obsessing, leaning forward, really wanting thinking that kind of promise, like, oh, when I get this, then I'm really going to be happy. What is the mind, that part of the mind that's paying attention, what is it paying attention to? What it likes, right? It keeps looking at, thinking about the gratification, the allure that we talked about earlier, right? So that is the way of feeding craving or desiring, wanting pleasantness, is the mind keeps looking at, remember, the experience of gratification is real. When we get what we want, it's pleasant. So if I keep just looking at that, imagining getting what I want, we get a little bit of it. You know, if you're sort of having an emotional affair in your own heart about somebody, you know, who you want to notice you or you want to flirt with or maybe even more than that, have a relationship with, And every time you imagine some perfect interaction with that person, you get a little taste of the gratification, right? So it feeds the whole mechanism in a very natural way of wanting. So what could the mind pay attention to that would interrupt that feedback loop of craving, of wanting? Maybe that it's impermanent, like, seeing the drawback. Like actually, oh yeah, it will be nice for a while and then that person and their personality habits will emerge and me and my personality habits will emerge and there will be the inevitable like not quite fitting together or whatever. Or whatever it is, you know, we'll, we'll switch from the romance, the idealistic romance to some other phase in the relationship and then it will just be ordinary. It's just like we really wanted to grow up but now we've grown up. 
But like when we were 13, it was a big deal. Right? It's just not a big deal now to be an adult. Or we wanted sex. And, you know, most of us have had sex. You know, I'm not saying sex is bad, but it's just like, it's not like it seemed. Right? Or, you know, I was looking forward to lunch and then I had it. And now I'm, it's like, so we can pay attention to the impermanent nature of our desires or some aspect of what it is the mind wants that casts it in a different light, in a more realistic light. Now, a lot of people misunderstand this part of the Buddhist teachings. They're called the Asubha practices. And sometimes they're badly translated as the re- seeing the repulsiveness or disgustingness of objects. But it's really about like when something is really attractive, seeing that it isn't actually attractive. It's just what it is. You know, And that doesn't mean that there wouldn't be pleasantness in the gratification of getting that experience that we're attracted to. But, it, but beauty is a construction. It's a constructed experience. And a lot of it is the fact that we do, what makes something um, attractive to us is that we don't have it. Right? If we had it, it's not attractive. So it's a relative thing. It's like I had some pita bread and hummus for lunch. And now that's the image of that, of me eating hummus and pita bread, it's not attractive. But at 1225, it was an attractive image. Because I had discovered this morning that the food that we had last Sunday, you know, Omkar and I led a program here last Sunday and we had a meal ahead of time to plan and it was still down in the fridge. I happened to look in the fridge this morning and there it was. Oh, we can have some of that today. So then during the program when I wasn't talking, I, the thought came up, you know, and it's like, <laughs> but see, now it's different. But see, I, I could have been wise in that moment, right? And I could have brought that to mind. Oh yeah, it will be pleasant for a while, and then it won't be pleasant anymore. And it's not like I'm, I'm lying to myself. That's actually true. I'm just completing the whole picture. And we can do that with desire. We just complete the picture. And that's called starving, the desiring, that particular pattern. It's like we bring in the full picture. And, and you may not like this, but you can just check it out to see if it's true for you. The more you do this, the more you realize nothing's worth craving. Doesn't mean if someone, if ice cream were available, you wouldn't take it, or a trip to a tropical beach is available, you wouldn't take it. It just means you don't expect it to make you happy in the, in the deeper spiritual sense. I repeat this quote often because I like it so much, but there's this um, Buddhist author. I think she practices in the Shambhala, the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, but she writes in a way that's really accessible for all people who practice these Buddhist awareness practices. And her name is Susan Piver, I think is how she pronounces her last name. And you could probably Google her. And she has one about relationships. And I think she's reporting something that a friend told her, or maybe she was involved in this. But anyway... One friend was talking to another friend about a new relationship they were in. And this person says to their friend, you know, after talking about it, sharing about this person, do you think it can work? 
And this friend of this person just had a great, wise reply. Of course it can work, as long as you don't think the relationship's going to make you happy. <laughs> Isn't that a good answer? It is so true. It's like relationships can work unless you think the relationship is supposed to make you happy, and then it's not going to work. Because that's not what relationships do. And that's what I said this morning, I think near the end, that we think life is here, in a sense, to make us happy. But life has no personal, the world, nature, the earth, whatever, it has no personal agenda. It's not here for anything like that. It's just causes the conditions expressing themselves. It's not about taking care of anybody. Can we come into alignment? Right? That's really the heart of the Buddhist teachings, using awareness to come into alignment with the way it is. It seems like, well, that would be very dismal for me to come into alignment with this personal. But that's the wrong idea because you think somebody who's very personal has to come into alignment with something that's very impersonal. Well, that would be very nihilistic and despairing, right? And that's what we feel when we think about it. But when we actually come into alignment, that means we ourselves, this thing me right here, me, becomes like this impersonal universe. So there's no me lamenting having lost personal meaning, right? I'm just checking it out. Like, what's it like for me, this personal guy over here, to kind of sympathetically tune in to the universe, this sort of impersonal swirl of causes and conditions. Let me just, because we do that emotionally. We go into a bar where there's a lot of anger and we start vibrating with that or we read the news and there's a lot of this, self-righteousness, and we vibrate with that. Well, why can't we tune in? This is kind of what emptiness meditation is about, those of you who practice this. You know, emptiness meditation is where using the sensitive mind to attune to the impersonal nature, and na- that nature that is empty of selfing, right? That's what emptiness meditation is. And we're just aligning with it, and we're seeing, like, well, how does that work? Given that I'm a human being, how does it work to align with the emptiness of selfing, the absence of selfing? And it does amazing things to busyness, right? Because it, it kind of pulls the bottom out of the whole engine of busyness but it's not against it's not like usually we think the way to deal with busyness is to sort of shut that engine off but it, it's like it, we realize it's not about like when said this 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 morning it's not about busyness or not busyness so just to complete this picture so uh, we can move on it's the same with all the other hindrances that we discussed that I just discussed with craving or wanting so like the same thing we want to investigate with ill will. When we're raging, angry, self-righteous, hating ourselves, hating another, lots of fear and anxiety. So there are different flavors of aversion, right? What's the mind doing that's feeding the cycle? Because it's doing something. If the cycle is continuing, it's getting fed. The image the Buddha uses is like, so suppose there's a huge bonfire and every once in a while somebody come along with a cartload of twigs and branches and, and throw it into the big bonfire, what's going to happen? <laughs> you know, And the nuns and monks and lay people, they say, well, that fire's going to blaze. right? 
says, Buddha says, just so, you know. You've got this pattern of ill will, and every once in a while, you throw more fuel in. Well, what's the throwing of fuel into that fire? What does the mind pay attention? Well, just in the same way with desiring, if I look at the thing I like, I feed the fire. With ill will, if I look at the thing I don't like, right? There's probably a politician we could bring to mind, different for different people right now. I was reading an interesting article about how effective uh, for people in the Republican conservative camp using the image of Nancy Pelosi is for raising money and for getting people out to vote. And it's just sort of interesting because you know, she seems sort of like a nice person. But it's like for some people it's like whatever, the devil or the you know, personification of everything that's wrong. And for other people it would be a different image, right? So if we keep looking at that image of that person who has guns or doesn't have guns, or drives an SUV or drives a Prius, or you know whatever it is, and then oh, those people are driving us into the ground. You know, they're everything that's good they're against. You know, and and that builds the ill will. The and what do we have to look at that undermines the ill will storm? Oh. I mean, the, the easiest, it's, it's loving kindness, of course, but it doesn't have to be loving kindness to the person, toward the person we hate. We could just, like, just realize being in an ill will storm hurts. Honey, this hurts. And I care about how wrapped up this heart and mind and body is right now. I care about it. I care enough to sort of not feed it. Or you could bring your cat to mind. Because ill will does not fit in a mind that has loving kindness in it, right? It's sort of like different minds. You can have ill will in your mind as a dominant factor, or you can have loving kindness. But in any one moment, uh, they can go back and forth, but in any one moment, you can't really have a strong degree of ill will and a strong degree of loving kindness. They just, they're two different minds. They don't work together. So if you can find a way to be, for the mind to be established in gentleness or kindness, there won't be a will. You'll have a vacation from the rage, the self-righteousness, the fear, the anxiety. Maybe you even got a taste of it in the guided meditation. Now I won't go through the other three of doubt, Ill, uh, restlessness, and energy because it's best for you to do this as an authentic investigation. When you're feeling really dull, heavy mind, gluey mind, what is the mind inclined to pay attention to and how does that feed the sense of heaviness and dullness, sleepiness, right? What could the mind pay attention to that changes it? Because it really, like, when you're lying there and you're thinking about, oh, my to-do list, you know, and it's like heavier, heavier, but if you thought about one thing you could do that you would actually enjoy well enough doing, whatever it is, getting a drink of water, you know, I'm thirsty. It's amazing how that gives you energy. Like thinking about what you want to do, not what you should do, but what you could do and that would feel good to do, is energizing. 
thinking about how it's too much or what you don't want to do or just paying attention to the heaviness of the mind, heaviness of the body. And the same thing with restlessness and with doubt. You'll learn just by observing your mind what feeds and what causes the abandoning or the dropping of the pattern. And then we take responsibility for this samadhi that I talked about earlier. Like we can move through life in this balanced way, this really beautiful way. And our world outside may be very busy, we may be quite active, but there's something empty, something calm, something stable, even in the midst of activity. And that's the mind, that's what we call the mind without hindrances. So it isn't about how much you're doing, although it's easy to learn this when we simplify our lives externally. It was interesting, I'll end with this story. I, I did a once a long time ago, a six-week retreat in Thailand at a monastery, famous Buddhist monk, Ajahn Mahabua's monastery. And it was different than some of the other monasteries in that everybody moved quickly. It was sort of a thing. And he was sort of this... He was like in his 90s at the time, but he was a boxer when he was a young person. And he had that, you know, and he wasn't, he never like had a few years of elementary school schooling, but you know, he wasn't a well-educated person, but respected, I mean, totally respected throughout the country as a wise person. And, uh, but for whatever reason, the etiquette in that monastery was to move quick. And because he was so popular, a lot of lay people, he had a lot of monks and nuns there, and then a lot of pe- lay people would show up every day with tons of food because it was in Buddhism, in Thai Buddhism especially, it's considered meritorious to come and feed, bring food to the monastery. So a lot of people would in tons of food. And then they have to divide it up because in order for your generosity to kind of really be good, everyone's got to have some of it. Right? And so, you, you know, you get, it's got to get divided among, you know, 100 to 200 people every day, every meal. And so there are these monks who distribute it and, and the nuns are just zipping around really fast, dividing things up, moving around. But the vibe is so peaceful. I remember walking into the monastery, you know, in this chaotic Asian country, I mean, any kind of place like that. But it was like this, you walk in, it was just like such a deep pool of stillness just moving into this place. Because even though they were all busy, all the buzz of people doing what they were doing. There was a real sense of the minds at peace, not acting out greed, anger, and delusion. So Wen's going to talk about uh, our next small group now, and then we'll break up into different groups. So we'll have the same uh, format that we had before with um, each person having the opportunity to speak uh, for about three minutes and we'll, we'll move around the trio um, and then have about five or six minutes just to open the conversation, see what comes up, see what was interesting to the group. Um, and so here are, here are some reflection questions. Um, I have two of them. So... Uh, is there a sense of overwhelm or too much in your life or in any area of your life? Uh, and if so, what views correlate with this 
sort of drivenness? What views um, kind of have propelled this uh, busyness? Does that make sense? Kind of the overwhelmingness? Like, what, what, what do you see as um, the point of views, the stories that you carry around this fact that you're overwhelmed? That's another way to say it. So just looking at the, the views that may be obvious, and then there may be some others that are less obvious. <coughs> and then the second question is, if you weren't busy, what else would, would there be? If you weren't busy, what else would there be? Is there a fear or a worry of what would happen if some of the things were let go of? Do we imagine it's possible to make peace with no ground? So I'll just read those again. So the first one, is there a sense of overwhelm or too much in your life or in one particular area of your life? And what views underlie or correlate with this? If you weren't busy, what else would there be? Is there a fear, a worry of what would happen if some of the things were let go of? Do we imagine it's possible to make peace with no ground? This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.